Dehumanization, depersonalization is one of the hallmarks of burnout. When we start treating other human beings as objects, when we become callous toward their experiences. And so it can be a sign that, you know what, we're not our best self. Whatever's going on around us is, is, is disconnecting us from why we're really here. Dr. Colin West is a professor of medicine, medical education, and biostatistics at the Mayo Clinic. His research focuses primarily on physician well-being, evidence-based medicine, biostatistics, and medical education. He has won numerous awards for his work and is a thought leader in these fields. Dr. West has developed and evaluated a comprehensive evidence-based medicine curriculum for Mayo Medical School and enacted change at the national level in the internal medicine resident career plans and current education climate. Today, we further our conversations that we've had previously about wellness and burnout by taking a magnifying glass to the role of the patient-doctor relationship and how this helps us as trainees and physicians find purpose and passion in our career. Welcome to Leading the Rounds. Hey, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Leading the Rounds. We have a very exceptional guest today. His name is Dr. Colin West. But before we get into our conversation with Dr. West, uh, Caleb, how's everything going on uh, labor and delivery? It's going, it's going okay. Not my favorite rotation, but trying to learn as much as I can and catch some babies when I can. How many, how many babies have you caught so far? Two babies so far. So getting some experience. Well, I'm a little bit envious of that. All, the only thing I'm catching in the in the lab is potentially fungus infection, but <laughs> not as fun. Dr. West, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, our pleasure. So we wanted to start off the conversation. I, I follow you on Twitter with our account, and we noticed that you've been doing Wellbeing Wednesdays for a while now. Tell us about that idea and why you got started with that. Yeah, so... Uh... I've been doing research and advocacy work around physician and in more recent years, more broadly healthcare professional well-being for more than 15 years. And uh, I was a relatively late adopter of social media. Um, but honestly, uh, at a gold foundation meeting that was dedicated to physician well-being, uh, Vinnie Aurora in Chicago, I uh, held a workshop on, you know, why you might want to think about being more involved on sites like Twitter. And full disclosure, I'm not on Instagram. I'm not on, you know, I've, I've never done a TikTok. And I think my family would <laughs> disown me if I did. Um, so right now, it's pretty much Twitter only. That's my toe in the water. Um, but the idea was trying to uh, extend the audience for awareness a little bit beyond what sometimes can be a little bit of a siloed and dry academic world. I mean, my background is writing papers, doing research, writing editorials, and really, uh, you know, sharing the importance of paying attention to the well-being of our healthcare professionals so that they can take care of our patients uh, in an academic environment. And getting that out more broadly to people who aren't as connected with the academic environment 
uh, was something I hadn't given a lot of thought to until, you know, just a few years ago. Um, Twitter is sort of a double-edged sword from my perspective. It is easy to go down rabbit holes and become much less productive in things that actually matter. Um, but it also uh, present, presents an opportunity to be able to share ideas. And if you can kind of close things off to the more negative aspects of it, um, it's a megaphone um, to, to get ideas out to different groups. And it's also an opportunity to expose yourself to ideas from other people that you might not see uh, because they don't, you know, maybe they're not doing research, but they have good ideas about their local experiences or they're talking with the mainstream media or local news channels. Um, maybe they are consumers of the research who are spreading the word themselves. And so there have been a lot of good connections there. So one of the ideas that I came up with just a little bit over a year ago was, well, maybe I can give my perspective on some of the research. What does it mean? Uh, what are strengths? What are weaknesses? Um, how can we advocate more effectively? How can we advance this field um, in this audience? And so, you know, that's where those started. I've tried to be pretty committed to it, where it is, it is every single week, there's at least something. Um, it's, you know, it's not a huge thing. I recognize that I'm relatively speaking a Twitter neophyte, and there are folks that have much larger presences. Um, but my hope is that, you know, as people come across those, they learn a little bit more about why these issues are important. They learn a little bit more so that if they're going to do their own work or speak about these topics, uh, they can be thinking about things the right way uh, to advance this more effectively. Um, and it's one of you know lots of other sites that are out there um, where people can you know just become a little bit more familiar, a little bit more educated, and. Uh, the other unique, the last unique thing I'll say about Twitter is, um, which can be good and bad, is that there's not really a closed group there. And so you have non-clinicians, you have patients who are checking out what we're talking about. And uh, I would say, especially with the COVID pandemic, um, sometimes my posts and other posts around well-being have, I, have resonated a bit more with uh, people even outside of medicine. They didn't really have maybe a full realization because we're, you know, not to sound, uh, you know, sort of pious about it, but we're kind of taught not to show our patients or our, our communities the stresses that we're experiencing. So we sort of, you know, we suppress those. Um, but they're real. And I think people are learning that healthcare professionals are shockingly humans first. And uh, I think, you know, some of these less formal communication uh, venues provide an opportunity to have a more human conversation about these shared issues. So I want to stem off that. Do you think that patients are more aware that physicians are burned out these days? Oh, I think absolutely they're more aware. Um, and I want to be very clear, healthcare professional and physician burnout is not the patient's responsibility. Um, and so the fact that they're more aware, that doesn't mean that we should be impressing upon them that they're responsible for the solution. They're not the ones causing the problems. Um, in fact, for most of us, if you really get down to it, uh, patients are our greatest driver of well-being. 
because we derive meaning, values, and purpose, what I call the MVPs of well-being, from our patient interactions. Um, that's why we work the long hours. That's why we train the way we train. Um, but I think it is helpful for patients to be aware that their physicians are human just like they are. We have the same struggles in our personal lives. We feel experiences deeply in the clinical world. And in fact, when, we, uh, when it seems like we're not feeling those experiences, we're not responding to our patients when they're struggling or celebrating when our patients do well, that's actually a sign that we're struggling ourselves uh, with some form of distress, whether it be burnout or something else. Um, so I think definitely patients are more aware, um, not just of burnout, but of stress in general among their healthcare professionals. And there are also an increasing number of patient groups that are advocating, recognizing that if they expect their physicians, their nurses, uh, you know, their, their psychologists, their social workers uh, to be well, that's actually helping them as patients. They should be demanding the best possible care environment. Um, you know, we're, we're in a different profession than the airline industry, for example, but it's no different than patients expecting that their airline pilot is actually well enough to fly the plane safely. And so, you know, patients, I think, are increasingly aware that they should expect, they have a right to expect that their healthcare professionals are prepared to take care of them optimally. So that makes my follow-up question kind of moot at this point, because you answered it without even knowing it. Um, but I, I found it interesting. This week, I realized I live with two medical students who are also M3s and they're in the clinics now. And it was interesting to hear their perspectives on the different rotations they're going through and it's clear which ones they liked and which ones they didn't like and there was a definite change in their personality based on which ones they liked and didn't like but not one time did they complain about the patients and so that you know warms my heart as someone who's not there yet i'm an md phd student by the way dr west okay um so i'm not there yet but it's nice to see that that my colleagues are finding meaning, value, and purpose in the patients that they're seeing as M3s. Yeah, I think that's critically important. It is, uh, uh, it's very poor form to uh, blame our patients for things that, you know, really they're not responsible for. Our patients place their trust in us. And uh, I think we've gotten better as a profession uh, at, limiting how we sometimes in the past might disparage patients um, as if patients are somehow a burden on us. Um, I think we're better about that than we used to be. It's at least better understood that that's unacceptable and unprofessional. Um, but I also think when we think about our patients that way, when we dehumanize them, um, dehumanization, depersonalization is one of the hallmarks of burnout. When we start treating other human beings as objects, when we become callous toward their experiences. And so it can be a sign that, you know what, we're not our best self. Whatever's going on around us is, is, is disconnecting us from why we're really here, from, from what our purpose is. And none of that is to say that you won't be tired and you won't get stressed and there won't be people that hit your last nerve. Because again, we're humans. We interact with different people differently. There are some people you will resonate better with. And there are some people that you just have a more challenging time connecting with. But if you can step back and remember 
This is a human being. This is someone who has placed their trust in me. Even if the dynamic of the relationship feels different, there is a core uh, relational dynamic there that is, uh, it's quite unique. And you have an opportunity, maybe not to cure patients always, but you always have an opportunity to provide them with a sounding board, give them your best advice and help get them to a better place than when they met you. You brought up caring for the people that are within your care. And I was looking on Twitter actually um, a few days ago and saw an interesting article about an airline company who the pilot said that they were too fatigued from flying all day to participate in a flight. So they decided to cancel a flight one night and move it to the next morning. So I wanted to think about your perspective on, on would that happen in healthcare and why, why do we as a healthcare system choose not to see that as a viable option and we work under fatigue and do these different things that potentially can put our patients under harm's way? Yeah, I, I think that's a fantastic question. It's one we continue to struggle with. Um, I will say on the positive side, uh, we have taken steps during training, at least, to try and put some kind of cap on some of the extreme fatigue uh, under training systems of decades past. So, uh, you know, I started residency training in 2000. Uh, that was the first year that there were caps on admission, new admissions to services, but there were no duty hour regulations. Um, generations before me, not only didn't have duty hour limitations or caps, they also didn't have limits on the number of patients that they could admit in a given shift. It was limited by capacity of their hospital. Um, so you would hear stories of people you know, admitting 25 patients dur- during a single overnight. Um, I can't imagine being able to provide any single one of those patients the care they needed with that kind of a, a rapid rotation. Um, it's putting out fires at that point. Um, it's also hard for me to imagine that, that learning is optimal under that kind of a, a situation. So, you know, the duty hour regulations for medical residents, uh, surgical residents were intended to try and, and, you know, mitigate at least the worst of those fatigue elements where people would be, you know, potentially awake for, you know, 48 or 60 hours at a time, things that anyone in healthcare would argue are extremely unhealthy and unsafe. Um, Now you could also argue as others in other industries have, is it really that much of an improvement to average 80 hours in a work week over a four week period? I I mean, that still seems uh, a little extreme. That's supposed to be your light cap on things. Um, and so I think there's still more work to be done. There's plenty of literature to suggest that being up 24 hours without sleep uh, leads to cognitive and, uh, and physical functioning, uh, not dissimilar to having a blood alcohol level at the legal limit. Uh, that's not very comforting if you think about a patient coming in in your 23rd hour on a shift. So what we're responsible for in medicine increasingly is providing safety nets so that our patients have that trust honored. Uh, old-fashioned training, you're in the hospital as long as you need to be in the hospital and you don't have backup. So it's you and you learn because you're it. You are the only thing between your patient and a bad outcome. 
I think in our current understanding of training, we have to have layers of safety. We think about this like we think about quality improvement. You know, it's a Swiss cheese model of, okay, you may not be at your best right now because you need to go offline for a couple of hours. Maybe you need, you know, even, even, you know, taking a nap which is something I was never able to do during my training, but has been studied as potentially helpful. Um, but if you're not available on your pager for a certain period of time, somebody else has to be. And so how do we build in that network where we have, uh, again, the, the safety nets overlapping so no one slips through the cracks? Um, so, you know, when the duty hours went in with residents, one of the problems initially was there were no concomitant duty hours for medical students. And there still are no duty hours for, for practicing physicians. So we haven't extended this as far as we need to go. The analogy to the airline industry, um, it's a little bit tricky because certainly in the surgical world, there are surgeons who will, in fact, I was just reading a post about this myself in the last few days about a surgeon who had a very complicated overnight call who canceled his or her clinic the next day because they didn't feel like they were able to engage in that clinic. And that's obviously very challenging for those patients. And in an ideal system, those patients who have blocked off time in their lives to be able to make these appointments would either have another clinician who's able to step in, a safety net, or they have a good enough relationship with this particular physician that they understand, hey, this physician's committed to me we're going to do this when everybody's well. And it needs to work the other way as well. If a patient gets up in the morning and says, you know what, I can't come in today. I'm not in a good space for this. They shouldn't have to wait three months for their next appointment because, hey, you missed your chance. But you don't have access. Um, if you think about that airline example, if you were a passenger on that plane, I think there are a couple of different minds there. You know, there's always going to be the person who thinks, well, wait a minute, I booked this flight. You have a responsibility to get me where I need to go and I've got things to do. So why doesn't that airline have a backup team, an on-call team to be able to step in? Well, why don't they? Because it's expensive. And I don't know how many pilots and crew there even are out there to be able to do this. But one big issue is, is financial. And I think that's true in medicine as well. We tend to operate on, on uh, you know, thin personnel margins where we don't have buffers. If people call in sick, who is the backup? Um, and that doesn't serve our well-being very well, but we feel like, well, we can't call in sick because there's no one else who can do it. And I trained with people who would make rounds with IVs in their arms because they were, you know, febrile and probably had influenza, but they didn't want one of their colleagues to have to come in on a day off getting their rest and recovery. So they would try and, you know, wear a mask and gloves and a gown the whole day and just try and get through it. That's not an ideal way of doing things. The other mind on the airline is people who say, in fact, one person posted, I think I saw the story that you're mentioning, one person posted that they actually thought it was a good thing that the airline was concerned enough about their safety to say, you know what, we're not going to take any chances here. Let's do this right tomorrow. So I think uh, how that gets communicated is important, but in medicine, uh, I think we have uh, taken for granted to a certain extent um, and Danielle Ofri has written about this, our own professionalism sometimes is used 
in a perverse way to say, no, you will step up. You will always step up. You will always put your patients first. And in the short term, that means staying late. That means coming in on an off day. But in the long term, that's not sustainable. And we need systems that support this notion of, okay, if I get out of balance because I do exert myself a little extra today, I need to have a buffer in the system to give me the necessary recovery from that exertion. Uh, We don't do that very well. Um, That's a work in progress for sure. So in your experience of working with high-performing teams in at Mayo Clinic, how have you guys been able to work on building in that buffer? Because I know the argument, like you mentioned, is we don't have enough staff a lot of the times or there are limited residency spots, so we can't just get more residents. And so how can we work on building in that buffer and building in that extra layer if there is those constraints that people often bring up? Yeah, I think, uh, and full disclosure, I'm not going to suggest that at Mayo we have everything figured out. I, mean, I want to be just be open about that. We are all in this together, uh, really across the world, in trying to improve our learning and working environments. One of the advantages that we have at Mayo is, is simply size. This is easier for large programs and large institutions because it's easier to swap parts around when you've got a lot of people around that can step in. But I do think that there are other ways to think about this, even for smaller programs. One example is the shift in training. I'm going to use internal medicine as an example because that's my field. Uh, In the 1970s and 80s, for example, it was not uncommon for the 36 months of training for internal, for core internal medicine, for 30 to 33 months of that to be inpatient call very little ambulatory experience. Well, if everyone's on inpatient call, there's not very much of a backup system for people to be able to come in in an emergency to spell one of their colleagues. If you shift your model to say, well, now, wait a minute. In fact, the majority of medical care is provided in the outpatient setting. We need to be training people for the outpatient setting, and we need to recognize that learning how to function in the hospital does not automatically equip you to function well in the ambulatory setting. They are different related, but different skill sets. Um, Then you might think about, well, okay, maybe we need to rebalance our training program so that we spend a little less time with redundant services in the hospital and a little more time with ambulatory services uh, that potentially afford some flexibility for jeopardy coverage or backup coverage when there are circumstances when people get overstretched. And so I think thinking about what your priorities are, what's your goal in your training program, uh, and is having this kind of safety net one of your uh, sort of core focal points, recognizing it's good for your trainees and it's good for your patients. Um, That's one thing that we do in a lot of our programs at Mayo um, is kind of shift the training paradigm so that our hospital services, uh, and, and don't get me wrong, there's plenty of inpatient ICU and other care at Mayo to go around, um, but there's a balance to that that's intentional so that people get exposure across lots of different disciplines. And that builds the bench a little bit so that if you do get into a situation where you really need uh, you know, to cover somebody 
uh, you have a little bit more of an ability to do that. Um, that's more difficult in smaller services. And, and I've talked with groups at Mayo, uh, you know, very small surgical subspecialty groups, uh, almost niche practices, if you will. Um, if they've only got four people in their practice that can do a particular type of surgery, and one of those four individuals has a scheduled vacation, another of the four individuals experiences a crisis. It's much more difficult to cover that because you've only got three, you've only got two other people that can do the same job. Um, and so uh, there are situations where that's going to continue to be a problem, even at a large institution. There, I think you need to establish a culture that prioritizes well-being and just recognizes, hey, look, if you're not able to do this, you shouldn't feel guilty about that. In fact, the more professional thing for you to do is to say, you know what, just like those airline pilots, we're not sure we can do this safely. We need to figure out some other way of doing this. And that's where the administrative structure of an organization needs to step up and be able to problem solve. Stemming off that, you mentioned that prioritizing wellness is dependent on the goals of the residency program that we were talking about. Besides making it, besides normalizing, you know, this, this idea of being responsible for your own abilities at the moment, what are other ways that residency programs can prioritize resident health and fulfillment to support their long-term career goals? I think Going back to something I said earlier about meaning, values, and purpose, I think embedding that into the fabric of the training program uh, is one, one approach that can be universal. Uh, sometimes it's, and this happens in medical school, just like it does in residency and, and in practice sometimes as well, we forget why we're here. And, you know, you're, you know, are you on are you on an obstetrics and gynecology rotation so that you can learn what you need to learn to do well on your shelf exam? Or are you on that rotation, that clerkship to learn about a branch of medicine uh, that can help broaden your horizons and help you take care of patients more effectively in whatever field you go into into your future? And I think uh, it's easy to get so focused on the, the basics of, uh, and I think in some respects, the mistaken basics of why you're actually doing what you're doing. Um, and so I think training programs that can really work hard to remind their trainees and uh, acknowledge their trainees' efforts on behalf of their patients and, and you know, really reiterating, hey, you know what? meaning, values, and purpose. That's what we want to connect you with as a training program. We trust that you're going to work hard on behalf of your patients. In fact, to a certain extent, we're going to work to protect you from yourself. We know that trainees already have high levels of grit. We know that physicians are already extremely resilient. We've studied this. Um, despite having higher burnout rates than the general population, physicians also have higher resilience scores. So physicians to know, to the surprise of absolutely no one in medicine uh, are already highly resilient and bring a strong work ethic to what they're doing. So I think if training programs can facilitate well-being, 
by making sure that their policies, their procedures, their structures, their communications align with how are we optimizing meaning, values, and purpose? How are we connecting our trainees so that they can go home every day thinking, hey, you know what? Even if that wasn't a perfect day, even if every outcome wasn't perfect, I'm one step closer to my ultimate goals along a path where I'm being reminded of why I embarked upon this in the first place. And I think that works best. And back to the question about what do we do at Mayo, um, that works best when the patient is at the center of the equation. The primary value at Mayo that all of our 70,000 employees across our entire enterprise could tell you at any time is the needs of the patient come first. But I think it's important to recognize that that also means that the needs of the patient come first, not just in the short term, but in the long term as well. And that means a sustainable workforce. So training programs need to think about their trainees, not as uh, cheap labor, not as uh, a way to keep the hospital going because you're less expensive than hiring a, a full-fledged professional, uh, but as partners, as learners on a journey that involves meaning, values, and purpose on behalf of and in partnership with patients themselves. And I, so I think, and I, I recognize that's not a particularly specific tactical answer, but I actually think the specific tactics matter less here than stepping back to the overall cultural component of why are we doing what we're doing and do our tactics align with that overall value that we place on meaning, values, and purpose. I want to bridge the bring in the conversation about physician resilience because I actually hadn't heard that physicians were more resilient than the average public. I could have guessed, but I've never actually heard it from an expert. I wanted to ask, what about medical students? Has that been studied? Are they more resilient than their like equally aged counterparts in say business or the military or in sports or just in general public? Yeah, I, I think it gets a little harder to compare with specific subgroups of the general population. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think we have the market cornered on distress in medicine, uh, but relative to the, the general public as a whole, physicians do look worse. Um, and for example, one of the main theories behind distress uh, to inform that is something called the job demands resources model. Uh, and this is a very simple model. It's one of these, once you hear it, you think, oh yeah, that's obvious. Distress and burnout results when the demands of a job chronically exceed the resources available to meet those demands. There's a balance there. Uh, in medicine, we, we all bring uh, a high level of individual skill to our job. We're smart people, we're educated, we're bright. Uh, essentially universally, uh, but the resources for what is a very demanding job sometimes aren't aligned and that leads to distress. Uh, among lawyers as a profession, their burnout rates are lower. However, if you think about the job demands resources model, and I'm not aware that this study has ever been done, I know that there are some people who are interested in this, so hopefully it's being done. If I think about certain pockets within law, for example, public defenders, they have incredibly high demanding caseloads. They're not paid very well. And their resources in the public offices are fairly limited. 
And I would predict that they have very high burnout rates. Um, as, as an example, when we think about within medicine, uh, looking at medical students or residents, I'm not sure about the exact head-to-head -head data for resilience. We do know that at the start of medical school, quality of life, burnout, and depressive symptoms are lower among matriculating medical students than among their age-matched college graduate peers who go into other disciplines. So medical students start medical school with better well-being. There used to be this mindset that we were just seeing the results of recruiting damaged goods into the field, and we should change our recruitment strategies. I think that's been fairly well dismissed at this point. We are, uh, and don't listen to what you hear sometimes about generational warfare, like, you know, the, the new generation of, of medicine just isn't prepared the way we were. That's nonsense. Medicine has changed. All of you are as passionate, as dedicated, at least as skilled and talented as any of us were in our generations. So, and you start medical school, the data show that you're actually ready for this career. By the end of the second year of medical school, the relationship with the general public has flipped. And now medical students have lower quality of life, higher burnout rates, and more depressive symptoms. So that suggests that there's something about the environment of training that uh, does not allow people to thrive optimally. I would argue that in the face of that, the fact that medical students persevere they work long hours, they take call, they scrub in on 17 hour head and neck surgeries. And as a rule, don't really complain that much. I know, I know physicians and students have a reputation of being complainers. It's actually not true. Um, I think that suggests that medical students have an exceptional amount of grit and they have greater resilience uh, than others more, more generally speaking. Um, but I'm speaking there not from a data perspective, but from a, this is what I would expect perspective. One of the things that I've noticed starting clinical time in medical school is a lot of the students, even, you know, finishing their second year, come in pretty bright eyed and bushy tailed to the hospital and excited to learn. And it's almost like the burnout and the problems we see in, in the hospital is kind of passed on as you progress. And so how do we break that cycle of students coming in and then just flowing into the same problems we have just by experiencing it from the re from the residents and superiors and and having the same struggles that that their superiors went through? Yeah, I, I mean, again, another terrific question and a real challenge in our health professions education. Um, I think it's heartbreaking when we read stories about physicians who say that they would discourage their children from pursuing medicine as a career, for example. Um, this is an amazing profession. You will have experiences and the ability to help people that just is not available. The intersection of, you know, knowledge, scientific awareness, cutting edge technology, and humanism. It's, it's, there's no other way to, to do this. Uh, medicine is an incredible profession, but we don't show people all of the positive sides. And I'm not suggesting that we should be Pollyanna-ish about, you know, hiding the negatives. We need to address the negatives so that the positives shine through more clearly. I am uh, definitely not a proponent of 
what some have called toxic positivity, this idea of, you know, if you can't say something positive about your work environment, even if it's horrible, what's wrong with you? Like, no, we need to be honest about our environments. Um, but that opens the door to one of the challenges that we've had in medicine that has been documented much better in recent years, um, less so by my research group. There's some great work going on around the country to document uh, things like bullying, harassment, intimidation, um, you know, outright discriminatory kinds of, of practices. These are things that, that break people down and they lead to distress particularly when you're entering clinical experiences with a great degree of uncertainty. You realize, you know, that first day on the wards, you don't know anything. And the last thing that you need in that situation is for somebody to be diminishing you. You need to be supported and reminded, well, actually, you know more than you think you do. You've learned a ton in the first two years. You just don't know how to apply it yet. So how can we support you and help you apply that? First day of internship is the same thing. You realize, wow, I thought medical school was challenging, but now I'm actually in charge. I've actually got some responsibility. My, I can write an order and people do stuff. Like, whoa, that's kind of intense. Um, we need people to be supported in those periods of uncertainty not bullied, not humiliated. And I think this environment, this learning environment needs to be more nurturing. But if you think about how things get passed along, how can a resident be supportive and nurturing if they're struggling themselves? How can an attending on your service be nurturing and supportive if they're struggling themselves? You're asking them to be superhuman, basically, and pretend that nothing's wrong and just sort of suppress all of this negativity. And it's really, really hard to do. And I don't think it's a fair thing to ask people to do. So the solution to it is all ships must rise. We have to improve the entire environment, which means addressing that this is a systematic issue, not a personal resiliency failing. This isn't about your stress management skills. Those are important. You know, you, you need to be able to cope with stress. But we need to keep that stress manageable so that people are supported so that the, the stress is growth promoting rather than damaging. And I think in medicine, unfortunately, we have a history of pushing people into the damage phase and then uh, victim blaming when they struggle, when they're taking damage. And that just pushes people away. It makes them cynical. It makes them negative. And you see some of those negative behaviors and I saw some of those in my training as well. I, I have often said that some of the most important lessons I learned in my medical training were by watching people who were not functioning at their best and making a mental note that I never want to repeat that kind of behavior. Um, it's good to learn those lessons, I suppose, if you're faced with them, but I'd rather not have had to learn them. I, I would rather have been able to say, wow, I would like every one of my role models in clinic to be teaching some, me something positive to take forward into my career. And so I think we need more of that. Does the name Simon Fleming ring any bells? Yes. Yeah, we had him on our show last season. What you're saying it reminds us a lot of what he has said. Um, and I wanted, I wanted to challenge you with the question, but how, how does the core tenant of Mayo Clinic, putting the needs of the patient first, how does that 
help to mitigate any bullying if it does at all? Uh, I think it by itself, only to a limited extent, perhaps, although the idea that your work colleagues, and I'm not talking just about clinicians, I'm talking about everyone. I mean, there is no place for uh, treating people who don't have your training as, as lesser. We work as a team. Uh, I think the acknowledgement that we can't serve our patients optimally if the whole team isn't functioning optimally means that the needs of the patient come first means that you better elevate your whole team. You better take care of the people around you. Now that requires that you acknowledge a couple of other things. I've already mentioned one of them. You have to acknowledge that medicine is a team sport and that the world does not revolve around us as the physician on the team. We have a very important role to play and we have unique training and unique skills. But few, if any, physicians can do everything that is necessary in our complex care structures to get patients what they need as they are, you know, continuing their journey through healthcare. So I think having the awareness and the humility to recognize that we work as a team and the best team players lift those around them up, you should expect that from your teams as well. So, and it, that this is, this is interdisciplinary. Um, and so I think other aspects of the culture of an institution become important. So it's not just about the needs of the patient come first, that has to get married with the core values of an institution. So we think at Mayo about, and you know, there's a whole list of core values, but it starts, the very first one is respect. So mutual respect. Um, that engenders a team philosophy. Everyone on this team has value. Uh, some cultures that gets internalized more strongly than others. We have the benefit at Mayo that it is part of our fabric. Um, there are some institutions and I, I've looked at these, you know, sort of mission statements from institutions. There are some where the word patient doesn't show up until the third paragraph. Well, if you think about what the priority is at that organization, I'm sure if you asked leaders in that organization, they, they would say, no, patients are, are everything. But they're only in the third paragraph of your, of your organizational mission statement. So there's a disconnect. Um, and, and do your employees see that? Um, when teams function well together, is that celebrated? Or is it taken for granted? And when teams don't function well together and people mistreat each other, is that accepted or is that called out as no, that's not how we do things. There are uh, those cultural aspects that I think tie in with the needs of the patient come first that are necessary for all of our team members to have their value honored. Um, and unfortunately, medicine has historically adhered to a fairly hierarchical structure. And in the clinical environment, medical students are often at the bottom of that hierarchy. And uh, that's problematic because medical students actually at most training centers do things that offload work from the rest of the team in a really important way. And their teams would do well to engage them more directly in some of the higher level functions of the team as well. Um, but I also think sometimes when there are interdisciplinary conflicts, learners sometimes become the targets of other people's distress. So you have a unit secretary who feels besieged because he or she gets mistreated by 
someone else, well, who can they lash out at? And let's be fair, medical students aren't always kind to other members on the team either. Um, and there are, you know, the, the medical student who takes other members of the team for granted isn't helping the situation either. And I think in all of those situations, what's been lost is this recognition that if we're really going to prioritize what our patient needs, we need to be functioning optimally as a team together. And all of us are important in that function. I love that you brought that up with, or brought that up. One of the things that I feel like is a struggle functioning as a team is that the teams get shuffled so often in a clinical environment. And so what are a couple things, maybe one or two things, whether you're a med student or resident that you can do to create a great short-term team for whether it's a month or two months or whenever that group is working together to try to care for patients? Yeah. I I think this is one of those historical balance points too. So uh, you know, in the bad old days when people are on call Q2 or Q3 for months on an end, uh, you didn't have to worry about the team shuffling because, you know, the resident, literally the resident lived uh, at the hospital. Uh, those days are gone and for good reason in most capacities, because it's just not a safe, effective way of doing things. But the trade-off has been shuffling of teams, lack of cohesion and consistency, lack of continuity across teams, lots of handoffs, lots of opportunities for balls to get dropped, for errors to get introduced. So how do we manage all of that? And I would say one thing that medical students in particular can sometimes do without even being aware of it is because medical students in many cases end up being the most uh, continuity-based people on a team. Uh, it's not always the case, but, but sometimes uh, the medical student may be the one who knows the team, the patients, the best, because the medical student isn't rotating out to clinic every, every fourth day or, uh, you know, sh- shifting the attendings, you know, shifting on a Saturday and the med student's there for you know, six weeks or whatever. It it's different for different schools, of course. Um, so I think uh, taking some ownership of that and recognizing as a medical student that you do have an important role to play on behalf of the patients in providing that continuity is important. Um, not every team's going to recognize that. And so that I go back to the culture of the training environment. You know, if that's true in your school, talk with your medical school Uh, your clerkship directors, your medical school curriculum leaders about, hey, you know what? This is a really important part of the teams. It seems sometimes to get sort of not recognized, but it promotes our value on that team. We're not just add-ons to the team. We're a core member of that team. The second thing I would say is be open about that communication because uh, it's hard to know sometimes who does have the continuity on a team to build that culture. Sometimes the nurses are shifting in and out. And sometimes the same nurse has been working on that same unit every day for the last five days. That's continuity. And if that nurse doesn't feel like part of the team, you don't benefit from that continuity. If that nurse is part of your bedside rounds, if that nurse is part of the team discussion and is not just someone that orders get thrown at, that nurse may engage with your team and you've got a much higher functioning group. 
that's going to work more cohesively together. And then the last thing that I would say is, particularly for medical students, is this is something that I counsel uh, our medical students at Mayo as they launch into their clerkships, is don't be shy about offering or, or stating what you offer to the team. Residents don't always know what to do with medical students. Attendings don't always know what to do with medical students. That seems silly, right? Because we were all medical students, but you get into different roles with different responsibilities and you've got these learners on the team who can't really write orders. None of their notes really count, although that's improved recently because there's new billing rules that have made a huge difference and, and help medical student documentation be much more useful. Um, but being clear that you're engaged, you're interested, and you want to help the team advocate for the patient can be really a way of putting your foot forward to say, no, I'm part of this team and I want to help and I want to absorb everything I can from this experience for myself and for my patients. I'm here to be a resource and an added value to this team. Let me know how I can help you know, just being forward with that rather than being sort of on the periphery, trying to stay out of the way and out of trouble. Um, and there is some risk in sticking your neck out like that because not every team is going to, you know, well, oh, you know, look at, look at the med student thinking he or she is, you know, a, a key part of the team. You've got to recognize that's their problem, not yours. If they don't recognize that you're a key part of the team, they haven't absorbed the right culture. So Dr. West, thank you so much for your time today. I think everything you said was very insightful and I kind of felt like you're always two steps ahead of what we were going to ask us, ask you. Um, we like to end our, our conversations with our interviewees with a question. Um, we believe that all leaders are readers and Caleb and I'd love to read. So we want to ask you, what have been a couple books that have been most influential for your leadership development? Wow. Um, okay. Well, so I am uh, at risk of giving a disappointing, non-politically correct <laughs> answer. I am actually not someone who reads leadership or Harvard Business Review type books. That's okay. Other uh, people have other people have given uh, stories, autobiographies, and so. And I, I don't say that to disparage those kinds of books, but honestly, a lot of leadership and a lot of what those books write about strikes me often as just different ways of saying, be decent. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's about mutual respect. And, uh, you know, 200 pages and thousands of copies later, I can distill that down into just different variations on how to be decent. Um, so, you know, other things that, that have uh, helped inform how I approach uh, approach interacting with people. So I will give a really politically incorrect answer. I would say uh, in how I think about our learning and working environments, uh, a major influence on me was the house of God. Uh, and if either of you, uh, it's, if, I don't know if you've read the book or if it's on your list at some point. Yeah, Sam, have, Samuel Shen. Yes, I have a love-hate relationship with that book uh, yeah. because it is horrible. And yet it speaks from a place of an ugly truth in our, our training and our practice in medicine. 
And I read that book for the first time before I went on the clerkship on the wards. And I thought it was one of the most offensive, disgraceful books I'd ever read. I reread it during my internship, which Mayo takes great care of its residents. I had a wonderful internship, all things considered. That doesn't mean it was easy. I reread The House of God during my internship, and I thought, oh my goodness, there are so many lessons and cautionary tales here in depersonalization. That book is really about burnout. Uh, you are following a group of interns in a semi-fictional universe uh, as they fell down a well of burnout and did or did not recover, as the case may be. Um, and so I often think back to some of the principles in that book about how we need to get to a different place in our training environments and how some of our core principles about needs of the patient coming first and mutual respect and optimizing our function by providing support. Stress is a growth promoter, but if there's too much stress and not enough support, it leads to collapse. And so that is, uh, I won't say I think about that book every day and what I do, but I would say that some of the core principles there definitely have had some, uh, they have informed how I think about some of the pathways we don't want to go down and what the priorities should be so that we can deliver on what this profession really should offer everyone who has the talent and the will to pursue it on behalf of their patients. Yeah, I read that book a few years ago and, and had a similar experience to exactly what you're saying. Yeah, I don't think it makes any sense to people who aren't in the midst of, uh, of the hospital experience. It, 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 um, it's a horror story, actually, if you don't have context. It's yeah. still a horror story if you do have context, <laughs> but I think it makes a little bit more sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for coming on with us today. I, I have loved your passion for medicine and your passion for communicating and improvement. And that is definitely something that I will take away from this discussion. I learned so much. I'm sure Peter did as well. I did. So thank you very much for coming on and talking with us today. My pleasure to visit with you guys. Great questions. And thanks for making the time out of your busy schedules as well. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.